Hi guys, I'm Josh McDonald. And I'm Miranda Materi, and we are Ham Therapy Academy. Today we're talking about bowler PIP dislocations uh, and what happens, anatomy, treatment, splints, all that stuff. Yeah, so volar is slightly different and does not occur very often, right? I think these occur 10% of the time with PIP joint dislocations. It's something like 10 to 20% of the time. So most commonly what you're seeing in your clinic is dorsal. And volar, I think, is much much harder to treat or much, I don't want to say harder to treat, but has more complications. Like if I had to choose one, I'd rather have a dorsal dislocation versus a volar dislocation. And the reason for that is because of the central slip, right? So oftentimes the central slip is involved with these and sometimes you can't reduce them. So, you know, it's not where you're on the field and, you know, they try to pop it back in place They're They're not able to just easily pop it back in. And so let's talk a little bit of anatomy first. We know what we're talking about. A uh, volar dislocation means P2. The distal end of that articulation, articular surface goes volarly. Um, and then the distal end of P1 impacts or interfaces with the central slip could be just an attenuation could be a fraying, could be a full-on rupture of that central slip so we end up with all the things that come with a lack of extensor tendon connection to that uh, that PAP joint so yeah that's something that if you're out in the field and you get a, a volar dislocation and, and someone like pops up and says oh my finger and then you just like reset it you haven't done anything with that central slip and so you end up with this developing near deformity, extension lag, all these are the complications because you feel like, oh, I fixed it. I've got a patient right now that was a hockey player and pulled his hand out of his glove and thought, oh, I'll take care of it. And now we're three months later and he's got this massive stiff finger. Yeah. And so it was a volar dislocation? Yes. Yeah. Ruptured the, okay. ruptured the central slip, um, had a lag and didn't get better for a couple of months. And so two, three months later, went to the doctor Doctor said, let's just manage it conservatively because that thing scarred in. And, and so now he's at us getting as much progress as we can away from a boutonniere deformity. Yeah. So how would you know? So say you have a volar PIP joint dislocation. How are you knowing or what do you do to know if the central slip is intact? So one possibility is an Elson's test, and that's the, you know, the, you bend the PIP joint with MCP straight. So whether you're hanging over the edge of the table or a book, but that concept where that's straight. And then if that DIP joint is rigid, that's a bad thing. That's a positive Elson's test. And that means lateral bands are now retracting unbalanced by a central slip intact. So without that central slip, that DIP pulls tight and it's not loose and floppy. You want a loose floppy DIP joint on an Elson's test. So that would tell me if the P excuse me, if the central slip is ruptured. And these we don't often know, right? I've seen these in the clinic too, where you're like, I don't even think your central slip's intact. And the doctor doesn't know either, right? So there it's not like you see it on an X-ray. You're just kind of watching for it, right? You know, you know if they had a volar PIP joint dislocation, there could be a central slip problem. So you're doing the typical yeah. things that you would do. Are, are they able to actively extend their finger, do the Elson's test? But sometimes they're so stiff, you can't get them into the position for an Elson's test. And sometimes they don't know what happened on the field. You know, they come in a, you know, a couple of weeks, a month, two later, and they say, I jammed my finger and it was out of place and I put it back. Well, which direction? I don't remember. So a lot of times you're working with incomplete information. You just mm -hmm. know that they can't extend that finger. Um, extend that PIP joint. And so you're working under that volar dislocation pretext. So what type of splint you are you making initially for these patients? 
So I'm trying to get them into like an anti-boutonniere, kind of our burrito style thing that wraps around, trying to get that finger extended. If it's a standard presentation and we're just protecting the, uh, the central slip, I want DIP moving for ORL lengthening exercises, um, but I wanna maintain that approximation of the central slip edges so that they can scar back in again. If it's further down the road, then it's a whole different thing, but yeah. Yeah, and then, so with these patients, since they have the joint dislocation, are you starting more of an early active protocol when they have their central slip involved, or are you just holding them for the typical six weeks with, like you would for um, a typical boutonniere deformity? Or a typical central slip injury. Yeah, yeah. If it's uh, if it's someone that I think understands the concepts, maybe I'll say in the clinic we're going to do some early short arc, twenty degree, forty degree, sixty degree, um, with a with a volar block to go to. If it's someone I think understands the concepts and can be diligent and understand at home, then I may send them home with that little exercise splint and they bring it in and we adjust it every time. But I'm cautious about that because I don't want a patient thinking, well, if I can bend a little, then more is better. So I'm only going to do that short arc motion, early active, if I feel like the patient really understands the restrictions put on that. Yeah, definitely. And then, so typically immobilizing for six weeks. Um, and then what's your treatment look like after the mobilization period? So again, it depends if they are stuck or if they're doing okay. If they come out of that immobilization and they've got, likely they're going to be a little bit stiff into extension if we haven't been doing the early arc stuff. So I'll work on getting back to that mobility and deflection without doing passive range of motion to possibly re-rupture. If they're lagging again, we might extend that precaution a little bit more. Or if they come to me late and they're stuck, maybe we look at some serial casting. Yeah. And so I think for these two, are you doing any <laughs> relative motion splinting? That's usually one of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And I'll, I'll use that if they're safe and secure and doing okay and um and and we know that 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 is healing and intact but if they're continuing to droop that's something i may not do right away how about you when do you decide to do it um so if they're really stiff i might start with it a little bit earlier i think there was a paper that came out using um relative motion splinting for boutonniere deformities and it it had a decent outcomes so i think for the right patient it's um, ideal and i think um, we have an article review coming out about it soon so I won't spill the tea on that one too early, but. And in a, in a Wendell Merritt course recently at a surgeon's conference, he talked about doing that like right out of the gate, like a, a yoke orthosis or relative motion orthosis right out of the gate instead of immobilization. Um, and I didn't get a chance to ask him afterwards, but our, like it, it, I, I want to see that in like a, in, in, a, in a journal article sense. So we have some good structure to say like, hey, if we don't have to immobilize, they're going to get way less stiff. That'd be great. Yeah, definitely. And I know you've referred to Wendell Merritt a few times. Um, why don't you, can you tell everybody who Wendell Merritt is and kind yeah. of? He's a, a surgeon that has done an amazing amount of research and put stuff out there. A lot of it's kind of open source stuff, but he does all kinds of work on the wide awake. Oh, I'm going to forget what it stands for. The Wallant, W-A-L-A-N-T. It's wide awake surgeries where he's doing these repairs on patients while they're, uh, while they're awake and he can do movement and he's doing research on patients um, with progressing that protocol towards yoke orthosis instead of long-term immobilization. It gets them more active. So lots of good potentials with some of the work he's done. And he is just a, a really nice guy too, easy to talk to and good to answer questions for anyone after. If you ever get a chance to go to a course of his, go to it. And then if you have a question, go up and ask him afterwards. 
Yeah, I think he's really supportive of the community of hand surgery and ther- hand therapy. And when I think of Wendell Merrill, I always think about all the work he's done on extensor tendon stuff. So yeah. I feel like he's really changed the game for us in doing relative motion splinting, even, you know, for those zone five, zone six injuries. Um, so he's really been a pioneer with the extensor tendon stuff. Yeah. So um, quick clarification, when you're doing a yoke splint, um, let's say it's a long finger affected, are you putting that MCP into flexion relatively or extension relatively? So so when, I'm sorry, I was kind of tuning you out. <laughs> <laughs> that happens all the time with us. That's all the time I'm talking. And we're like, no, say that again. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> when you do a yoke orthosis for um, uh, this kind of dislocation on a PIP joint, um, to predict the central slip, are you relative motion, relative flexion, or relative extension? Yeah, so I'm putting them in relative flexion to because um, you know if you're putting them in relative extension, you're going to really be loading that central slip by because they're going to be allowing them a lot of flexion. Versus if it's in relative uh, flexion, then you're really making that extensor tendon work, right? You're making that central slip work, mm-hmm. and you're really working to pull them into full extension. So I think it's a great option for that, but definitely more relative flexion which is the opposite of what we'd normally do if it's a zone four or proximal. So it, it, key point there, it's a different direction on that extensor um, loading that we want to pursue, but yeah. Yeah, I think that's key for everyone to know, right? It depends on what you're yeah. really working on and what, yeah. So you can't just put any relative motion. You got to make sure it's an extension or flexion. And then if yeah. you just think yeah. about what structure you're trying to protect, I think it's helpful. Yeah. All right, so we covered a bunch of stuff. There's always more we could cover, but if you guys have ideas on topics you'd like us to cover, um, let us know. Shoot us an email at info at handtherapyacademy.com.